Hello and welcome back to A Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am your host, Scotty Milder. So Amelia is out of town this week. She is off surfing the seas of Mexico. So we got uh, one of our favorite guests back, uh, Rebecca Rowland. Hello. Hello, Hello, Scotty. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm really happy to have you back on. I was just telling Rebecca before we started that her episode from last year, if you go back and listen to it, is one of our most popular episodes on the show. So, yeah, definitely happy to have you back. And this is definitely going to be like another horror-themed conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, the subject matter is actually Amelia's. It was her idea. She was like, you guys should really talk about just like the things that influenced you and made you want to be a horror writer. So. Okay. Yeah. That's what no, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this. Yes. So, well, I guess I'll let you start because Ooh, I did rewatch one of the movies you mentioned. Um, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it and really curious how it kind of falls into like the horror category for you. So I rewatched ah. Time Bandit Time Bandits last yep. night, which I hadn't seen in years. And yeah, I just really want to hear your thoughts on that one. Do you want okay, because I have two movies that I wanted to you want me to talk about Time Bandits first? Sure. Can, yeah. Okay. So one of my, I one of the people in my life who I think influenced me the most to become a horror writer is actually my aunt Susan. Hmm. So my my mother was the oldest in um, six siblings, and my aunt Susan was the youngest, okay. and I'm the oldest grandchild on that side. And so uh, uh, my aunt and I are actually not that far apart. I was going to say age. it's almost right. more like cousins or something, right? Or almost like she was almost like an older sister, okay. right? So when she was a teenager, like I was, I was very little, and she would take me to movies. So in her twenties and everything, and I'm like you know seven, eight, whatever I am. She took me to everything. So she took me to like mm. Superman 2. She took me to um, the Popeye movie, like with Robin Williams. Oh. I can remember, <laughs> right? So all of these movies that I was probably not old enough really mm-hmm. to appreciate, yeah. but she would bring me to them. And, you know, she would bring me to all these really cool places. And so she brought me to Time Bandits when it came mm. out, which I want to say is 81. I think it, I so, looked it up. I think it's 81. Yeah. So I, and it's funny, I rewatched it recently as well. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like I met, I missed so much of what was going on when I was in that theater, but I also was just mesmerized by it. There was just Mm -hmm. something about just this whole concept of being able to be dropped in different places. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, the special effects, they do not hold up at all i mean like the supreme <laughs> being you know um but the I supreme being is probably the weakest yeah. it's it's bad like it's bad. <laughs> but at the time i was you know here i am whatever seven you know eight years old or whatever staring at the screen and i just thought it was the coolest i still have no idea what the ending is about and now that i'm <laughs> in my 40s i still i have no idea i remember being little and thinking i have no idea what's going on here yeah. And now I still don't, but I still, I love Terry Gilliam as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I just think he does such cool stuff visually. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a big fan of the Monty Python crew. So seeing them throughout the, the movie is also really. Oh, yeah. Very, um, think... John Cleese is Robin Hood is the oh, probably he's... my favorite. Like just the jolly good. Jolly good. <laughs> he's hilarious. Yeah. He's hilarious. That whole scene is a riot. It's an absolute yeah. riot. As far as an influence for making me a horror writer, I did really think a lot about this. And I mm-hmm. think what I incorporate in my own writing is I like to put a lot of allusions to historical events, to media, to Mm. pop culture, and just sort of slip it in and not, it's almost my own personal, like, here, here's an Easter egg if you get this. But if you don't, like, I don't know, I guess I'm just irresponsible. I'm like, oh, well, too bad. (laughs) It'll just, you know, it's there. But But I feel like that's something I took from Stephen King, because he does that a lot. Yeah, and now, does. and it yeah. does like when you go back and read like 1970s Stephen King, it's like, oh, this really does like date some of these books, right? <laughs> no. Right, but actually, but I also think it cements them, like it mm-hmm. actually makes it so that, yeah, now I'm I feel like I'm entrenched kind of in this in the time in this period. decade, right. yeah, yeah. But, um, so time bandits, I think so many of the different places that are they are dropped, you don't necessarily get unless you get it like unless Mm -hmm. you so being eight years old you know with napoleon i I get it now as an adult but as a child i didn't get it and yet it still had this effect and i guess Mm -hmm. that's that's the lasting effect on my writing is just seeing you know having these wink wink nudge nudge moments Mm -hmm. in time bandits that i i like to use myself i just yeah and kind of like the the some of the humor Mm -hmm. that goes on there that's sort of very you know again very wink wink kind of tongue-in-cheek i think that i really enjoy like the one thing that and some of this is in the context of having read some stuff about terry gilliam recently that's not super flattering about his process yeah uh particularly um i don't know if you heard the whole story from sarah polly uh oh, where no. she, she starred in uh adventures of baron munchausen which was obviously a few years later right. um and she's been very vocal in the last couple of years about like that set was dangerous like it was like irresponsible and they were lighting off like explosives next door and scaring the horses and and she said she reached out to terry gilliam as an adult because i think he was getting ready to do tideland which has a little girl in it and she was like hey like just be more careful with the child and he was like yeah yeah yeah, cool 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 and then i mean (laughs) when she talked to me and she was like okay yeah he's terry gilliam you know but like and so it's like okay like the filmmaker in me who has I mean, had my cinematographer fall off a cliff while we were shooting a short film. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, he was fine. (laughs) He broke his camera mount, but it's like, you know, sometimes shit happens. Also, sometimes like maybe you can't be super cavalier with that stuff. But at the same time, like going back and watching, I haven't watched Baron Munchausen also in years, but going back and watching Time Bandits, one of the things that really like comes through in that movie is like, it feels dangerous and not in a, like, I'm not necessarily thinking about dangerous in terms of like what the actors went through or anything, but like in a weird way, it made me think of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it's not just a movie about crazy people. It's like, you feel like it was made by crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Time Bandits, like, it's, well, everything Terry Gilliam does just has that, like, just this really barely bottled energy to it. Yeah. That feels like, and you can tell this is an artist who's just going for it. 
like every time. Like he doesn't know how not to. I know that I read when he was giving instructions to the actors for the the scene um, right before the Robin Hood scene Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, all of the bandits are kind of falling from the sky from the portal onto the carriage where Shelley Duvall and Michael Palin are. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of giving them like, hey, you just want to sort of fall to the side so you're not crushing the carriage and you're not going to fall through the carriage or what have you. And he decided to demonstrate it himself. Mm-hmm. And so here's big, you know, Terry Gilliam jumping on whatever he's jumping off of <laughs> onto the carriage and ended up going through the carriage and just crushing Shelly Duvall. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, I can see that. I can see mm-hmm. that it being kind of this very kind of just. Well, and he's, he's famously uh, someone who like, they will have planned a certain like sequence for months. They've built sets. They've put millions of dollars into it. They've got costumes and he'll show up on the day and be like, you know what? I came, I had a dream last night. I came up with this crazy idea. Scrap all of this. We're going to do this, which is why like, you know, Baron Munchausen went way over budget, you know, but there's something, you know, my favorite movie. I mean, I've mentioned it on here. My favorite movie of all time is Apocalypse Now. And one of the things I love about Apocalypse Now is it's in a very different way. It's got the same feeling of like, this thing was like, this close to spinning out of control you know and you always kind of feel that with terry gilliam stuff and i was surprised going and some of that obviously comes from the monty python kind of ethos but i was surprised going back and watching time bandits how like wild even today it feels you know yeah 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 it's um reading the trivia in imdb is Mm -hmm. is very eye-opening it's very (laughs) eye-opening they're making a television series for apple plus um really yeah for time i knew that they're rebooting yeah um which i'm really excited about i mean i'm hoping that it doesn't Mm -hmm. you know i just i don't want it to sort of wreck that nostalgia that I what have for there, the right. movie, but it'll be really interesting. I mean, I know when when David Warner died a few, mm. it might have even been last year. I don't know. Last year, the year before. In the movie, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That. I mean, he's. I know he's had all of these iconic roles, but for me, he'll always be right. The, this the villain that's sort mm-hmm. of the evil. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. No, that's a. So one question I have watching it because I have my, I think my equivalent of like a childhood movie that's not a horror movie, but still kind of helps spark the horror right on me yeah. would be the never ending story. And the thing is like, there were parts of the never ending story that were like genuinely scared the shit out of me. Was yeah. there anything in, t- because there's, there was some imagery in time bandits that I was like, Oh, that is kind of scary actually. So, when I was a kid, I do remember sort of the last location where they drop, which I always felt, even looking back now, I think he's kind of not playing fair because every other mm-hmm. place where they drop are actual historical events, they're right. real places. And then the very final place, spoiler alert, is the Land of Legends, right. which is not a real place, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, it goes it's into like the fair. fantasy kind of realm for right. sure. Right. And so he's there on a boat that is also the hat of a giant. Mm-hmm. And I, I do remember thinking as a child, like, oh, my God, what is what is going on here? Like, there's an ogre, there's this giant, and then, you know, sort of the creepy castle that they where they find evil. Mm-hmm. But it's, it gets really dark, like very dark. It does. The end. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's dark, but stays funny. And which yeah. was like a tone that as a kid, 
is like kind of hard to wrap your head around a little bit. Agree. Yeah. The giant really was striking to me because, like you said, a lot of the special effects don't. Um, like the supreme being is kind of like, okay, <laughs> you know, right? Basically, like a cartoon head that floats around, but like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the giant sequence, I thought actually that part really holds up well. The way it's shot. You know, and it's all very simple. It's just like composite shots, a lot of low angles, a lot of slow motion sound design. But that that whole sequence, I don't remember that scaring me as a kid. The one that scared me as a kid was the Minotaur, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Agamemnon, yeah we, Agamemnon's yeah. fighting. But like, but on a rewatch, the giant really jumped out at me. And there's, I think the, even though like watching it now, the scene, you know, Agamemnon played by Sean Connery, of course. Um, where he's fighting the Minotaur, which I think is actually just supposed to be a dude wearing like a bull's head. Yeah. Like, I don't think he's <laughs> supposed to literally be the Minotaur. Um, yeah. Because like the bull's head is all kind of rotting and it's got these like holes for eyes and stuff. And I was like, that's kind of a horrific image. It, but again, yeah. the whole sequence is really funny. So it's like that clash of tones is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely it's a completely different movie when you watch it as an mm. adult, I think. I think, yeah. yeah. There was always something because I feel like Tim Burton has a some had in some ways similar vibe to Terry Gilliam, but there was always something more like I feel like with Tim Burton, even with a movie like Beetlejuice, which has some of that same crazy energy, you kind of feel like Tim Burton knows how weird it is and he's really like going for it. Like there's an affected quality to it, yeah. Which sometimes I like, sometimes I don't like. I mean, I think I'm on record of on the show of not being the biggest Tim Burton fan, but like what I kind of do like, and it maybe goes to like what Sarah Polly was talking about is like, you kind of feel like Terry Gilliam actually doesn't know how crazy his shit is because yeah. he's just in his own crazy head. And like, it doesn't feel affected. It feels like it's just pouring out of this guy's skull, you know? Yeah. And maybe a little unsafe, like at least yeah. with Tim Burton, you know, he has it. Like he has the crazy wrapped up, like he's got, right like a safety net whereas maybe terry gilliam not so much <laughs> not so much which is part of why the movies are so great and also part of why like if i was an actor i might think twice about being yeah. in one <laughs> you know yeah, but, yeah 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 did he do he he did fisher king correct mm -hmm. yes probably that's might be one of my favorite movies of all time Definitely that's my great. that's my favorite terry gilliam movie and i know that was his like director for hire gig kind of because he had bombed so hard with baron munchausen yeah. um that he was really kind of like on the outs in hollywood and fisher king was his, kind of his way back in which obviously led to 12 monkeys and yeah. um yeah. fisher king is again i think i saw that as a kid and that's not a kid's movie particularly no no um, no no not yeah. at all but it has that same kind of like spinning out of control feeling and the same clash of tones and like like that movie really, I haven't seen, that's another one I haven't seen in a while. That one had a big effect on me. I'm probably a little older, probably like middle school. When yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I ended up writing a paper on it actually hmm. for a, a, a King Arthur class that I took. Interesting. Because it's, because it, yeah. it, it is essentially the story, right? Of the green knight. Right. 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 And I just think it's one of these. And it, that's why I had to sort of check myself. Like, is it Carrie Dick? Gilliam because it's mm -hmm. not as out there maybe right. as some of his stuff and it's very emotional and mm -hmm. and it just it's probably my favorite Robin Williams role 
I um, I think I mean everyone says Goodwill Hunting. I think for me living in Boston, I always feel like Goodwill Hunting is a little bit like the like cuddly Boston. It's like Disney Boston for me. <laughs> I agree, absolutely. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you would for sure know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, no, Boston always felt a little more like The Departed to me than Goodwill Hunting. But like, yeah. yeah, Robin Williams in the because I think that was when he was really not known for doing the dramatic roles yet, and that was just the per because he got to be crazy robin williams but but it was like for more of an intention you know wasn't just being like crazy and weird and funny it was like oh but this is like a disturbed guy right you have a lot of pathos for yeah yeah Yeah. that's a whole other episode we need to do an episode with fisher king yeah i would love to i would really (laughs) love to go back and rewatch that one yeah um yeah yeah, and like i said my version of of time balance is probably the never-ending story Mm -hmm. um and i'm assuming i think we're like sort of the same generation so like i'm assuming you saw that we're both generation x yeah like like baby x i think (laughs) sort (laughs) of (laughs) so what about never-ending story is because it's not I mean, it's, it's, it's more fantasy, right? It's, it's more overtly fantasy. Yeah. Right. Right. So what about it do you think speaks to what you now create as a, mm-hmm. as a horror writer? Well, part of it was like, there were a couple movies that came out of that time period that I just really deeply related to the main character. So I really, and I think being just like the weird bullied kid who wanted to read books all the time, mm-hmm. I definitely felt like I was Bastion. Like I very much related to Bastion. The other movie along those lines that I very much related to is Stand By Me, actually, oh, with yeah. Gordy. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So just the idea, like the bullies really resonated with me because I was, you know, was like the bullied fat kid, basically. And then just the hiding out, like if I could have hidden out in an attic somewhere and read a book during the school day and like literally being transported into this fantasy world. That's like, I didn't want anything other than that <laughs> as a yeah. kid. So that no, was, I get it. Yeah. So I think on an emotional, cause there are a lot of other movies. Like I think of like the dark crystal had a big impact on me. And that is like, I mean, I always say like, that's, that's the thing about the eighties where they would make kids movies about genocide, which is like not something you get today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. And you know, you, you know, I didn't see it until more recently. But even like a movie like Labyrinth, I know that had a huge effect. You know, Goonies had a huge effect. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously Goonies has a you know One Eyed Willie, which was scary when I was a kid. Gremlins, uh, which is basically a horror movie for kids. Yeah. Um. But the Neverending Story just hit a chord, like a deeper chord for me. And some of it, I think, is the relationship to that character. Um. And then Atreyu being kind of like an idealized version of Bastion. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And then some of the imagery, like the swamps of sadness, like, and and the turtle, like that almost feels like Lovecraftian to me now when I watch yeah. it. Yeah. The Gamork, obviously. Yeah. And the nothing, for sure. I mean, I think some of my interest in cosmic horror probably comes from like the nothing. Like just the idea of a void, like an emptiness being the villain, you know, yeah. the big bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I'm reading, have you ever read Kathy Koja's The Cipher? I haven't. No. It's, you know, I'm trying to go back and read some of those like early 90s kind of splatter punky, like transgressive horror stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, th- you know, the cipher is, I won't go too deeply into it, but it's about this like pair of like pretty terrible early 90s, like Gen X, you know, people, grungy people living in an apartment where they, and they discover something they call the fun hole in a, in a storage room, which is just this like hole in the floor that obviously is like, a portal or something to somewhere else but she keeps referring to it as like a lack like it's an absence and that's like 
when I think of like the the nothing and never ending story, that was what was scary to me was the idea that something could literally just come on and like erase things. Where it's not like, oh, it will just come and destroy something like a hurricane. It actually will make it like not exist, you know. Right. Which is that was like yeah. really scary to me as a kid. Of course. No, that's terrifying because especially yeah. I mean, as adults, we don't you know, none of us knows sort of what happens after death or anything like mm-hmm. that. And and but as a child, that's it's even it's just a just a bigger, it's a whole bigger kind of right. I think fear. Mm-hmm. Um well, yeah, because yeah. then it gets tied into, you know, obviously fears of death and stuff. But I think, like, I'm super fascinated by black holes. And, like, I refer to them in my writing all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I feel like, to me, the nothing is, like, my first experience with the concept of a black hole. Something mm-hmm. that just yeah. sucks up everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like So that was, and obviously the work is scary. I mean, it's a big, scary wolf you know like but yeah that movie because i loved gremlins i loved goonies i loved all those things but that movie just i watched neverending story over and over and over again i couldn't get enough of that movie and i've watched it again in recent years and again it's like time ban it's not all the special effects super hold up (laughs) (laughs) there's some pretty bad green screen (laughs) in that movie um but the stuff that does hold it just still it like dumps me back into that feeling of being like a little kid, you know, the wonder and the terror of it, you know? Well, it's funny. The ones that you're mentioning, like Labyrinth and Never Ending Story and Dark Crystal, they all, they're not horror and they weren't marketed as horror, but they're almost like horror coding. Like they, they, like you're saying, like they have, they have this sort of underlying aspect of, Mm -hmm. of, of it that is frightening, is Mm -hmm. frightening. Um, Well, that's, you know, it's the, like, I think I've told you this. I know I've told, I know I've mentioned it on the podcast, but when I teach horror classes, you know, and I say like understanding what horror is versus like what a suspense movie is or something. It's like, to me, horror is always about like, you know, science fiction is about taking the rational world and then extrapolating things we don't know, but it all still works within this rational framework. Right. Fantasy is about like, creating another world that has different rules, but it still has rules. Like there's a rationality to it. You know, like Westeros is like, uh, yeah, they happen to have dragons there, you know? Right. right. But it, but it, in the world itself, it's part of the, the logic of the world. To me, horror is about taking a rational world and then introducing an irrationality that just violates it. And that, that creates a very particular type of kind of existential dread, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think, I mean, Dark Crystal has some of that with the Skeksis, but even like in that movie, the Skeksis still kind of exist within the rules of the world. Whereas in the Neverending Story, it's just like the nothing is this invader, this like outside thing that like no one understands. It's totally unknowable. Yeah, and like yeah. um, that to me was just way scarier than like the gremlins, you know, which. Right. Which are face know, value. Like, you know, like, right. okay, well, here's, here's the rules. Like, don't. Right. Be the yeah, I mean, literally, the rules are explained at the very beginning of the <laughs> right. movie, and then the movie just like sticks to those rules, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's something about the nothing that was so just you couldn't, I couldn't wrap my arms around it, you know. Yeah, and I think that's part of what, like, I think back to Time Bandits, what makes Time Bandits a little different in some ways is it's almost more surreal because it's like there's no rationality here. <laughs> like he's not, it's Terry Gilliam. He's not trying to be rational. So it's just like you're bouncing from one thing. I mean, I guess there are sort of rules because you have the whole the time holes and stuff. Um, but really it's just about what crazy shit Terry Gilliam can come up with. And that's why that movie feels so wild. There's yeah, the ending, that, yeah. again, it's, yeah, it's, 
there's I don't yeah I mean I guess we could yeah I mean I'm if you, you know you've had 40 some years to watch time bandits if you go yeah. back and yeah spoiler yeah. alerts obviously for everything but yeah spoiler alert if you haven't watched time bandits wait at the very end oh the the uh Kevin the the child that's sort of accompanying mm-hmm. the time bandits right he's back in his own room but the house is on fire if right. I remember, the house is on fire and so the family has to evacuate and then it's the piece of evil that was it's in, in the toaster <laughs> right in the toaster yeah whatever yeah and the mother the parents touch it and then they disappear mm-hmm. and then the camera just sort of pans back and then the, the credits roll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i remember thinking like what I don't yeah. I mean, I like what? What if um Well apparently I was just reading about it. Terry Gilliam had to fight with the producers about that ending. They definitely did not want to go with that kind of dark ending and he stuck yeah. to his guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean I, I I can't say they were wrong. Like I, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But, yeah. And that's I and I think that's the difference between a movie like Time Bandits and a movie like The Neverending Story. Because the Neverending Story, you know, it was a big commercial as a German production. It was Wolfgang Peterson, actually, who's not a Terry Gilliam, you know. He's, yeah. And so like they were not gonna end the Neverending Story in such a crazy, weird off note like Time Bandits does, you know. Right. Um, so you know, Neverending Story is still about like you have the triumphant ending. Every you know, everything is restored in the end, you know, the nothing is vanquished. And like it, like you said, at the end of Time Bandits, it's like you don't even know, like, wait, like it doesn't even feel like an ending. It feels like it ends at the crisis point. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh wait, so his parents just got evaporated. You know, roll credits. <laughs> right, yeah. And like the the firefighters like just drive away. Yeah. There's that weird kind of wave from Sean Connery. Who's He's back randomly. Right. Yeah. He just kind of winks at him and leaves. And it's like, what? I don't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you uh, move on to your next movie. And I know oh, you brought yeah. a prop for this one. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to slip in a cold open here. Okay. In the tradition of, of weirdest thing. So <clears throat> I was, I, I don't know how old I was. I, w- I would say uh, 10, 11 years old maybe and so my mom was a nurse um which means that uh i never got to stay home sick from school (laughs) ever (laughs) unless i was actually like throwing up a a major organ or something but and my sister and i really weren't sick very often when we Mm -hmm. were kids but i can remember it was this this evening i woke up i was freezing i had this really super high fever and i was putting on like as all of these clothes just trying to warm up trying to warm up trying mm-hmm. to warm up and my sister and i shared a, a a bedroom on the second floor of our house and i went downstairs it was the middle of, or late at night uh went downstairs to kind of tell my parents like oh i'm i'm freezing i'm freezing i'm really sick and my parents were watching television mm-hmm. in our den and they and i I walked in and on the television is this silver haired man mm-hmm. who is holding a magician's hat. Oh, I know. Pulling exactly. out, yes. which you want to, you want it to be like a cute little rabbit. Uh-huh. But he, as soon as I walk in, he pulls out this kind of demon skeletal <laughs> rabbit right. type ghoul. And it scared the living daylights <laughs> out of me. I was like, geez, I already have a, 
fever. And now I come in. Right. And, I, and this this image is in front of me. And I get my parents were watching Twilight Zone, the movie. And I mm. think it wasn't until probably the following year I, I got up the nerve to watch it myself. I think mm. it must have been on HBO or whatever it was. And I absolutely loved it. The opening mm-hmm. scene of that movie, I rewatched it recently. So it's now it's 40 years old. This is actually yeah. the it came out in 1983. And That's right, yeah. the opening it, it is probably one of my favorite scenes in all of horror <laughs> is, you know, the Dan Aykroyd like right. I see something really scary. And I have to tell you, it holds up because watching it yeah. Recently, even though the makeup is is kind of like eh, like you're blue, like I get right. it, it's not really that scary. He has these teeth mm-hmm. that I don't think that I it registered with me as a as a kid watching. Yeah, it. but I know the exact image you're talking about. Holy cat! Talk about jump scares! Like right. a callback to <laughs> to right. the previous episode. <laughs> um, yeah, I just it's there's so much about that movie that informs my writing today. The thing that I I try to do with most of my stories is I always try to have a twist. I try Mm -hmm. to have that. And and I get it from Twilight Zone. I get it from, it's something that I crave when I read something. I want Mm -hmm. to be taken by surprise, but I want it to make sense. I don't want it to be this bizarro piece. Well, that's interesting you're saying that with the twist, because I'm thinking back to some of your writing, in particular, Optic Nerve. Uh, Is that, (laughs) would you call that a novel or, or a novella? It's probably a it's novella, a, right? It's a short novella. It's actually, I'm just mm-hmm. going to put that out there. I don't know when this episode drops. It's up on Godless. It's been it's mm. one of the nominees for Novelette of the Year. Even though oh, nice. Congratulations. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, I um, mean, I know I, I told you I loved it when I read it. And it has, and I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. Um, But it has, I would say what feels like, a, now that I know, now that you're saying this, a bit of a twilight zone i'm not even going to call it a twist but just like uh like when you get to the conclusion it it, it has that kind of feel of like almost a classic twilight zone oh thank story. you yeah. thank you yeah it's um it's just it's even in some of the stories that i write i'll even reference a, a mm-hmm. twilight zone episode like the character will be watching it in the background because I, they just, I adore those up, and then going back and watching the classic Twilight Zone because that's way before right. my time. But going back and, and even the 1980s television series that came mm-hmm. out, I really enjoyed. But the the movie itself, in fact, I was just talking to someone about the movie recently, and what I found is that because it's 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 four separate stories, right? But also this frame story, right, with Dan, Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks. And the four separate stories are vastly different from one mm-hmm. another. I mean, they're done by four different directors, right. really the powerhouse directors of speculative movies at the time, right? right. So we have like, we have uh, John Landis, we have Spielberg, uh, Joe Dante. Joe Dante just, did the one you were talking about with the rabbit. With the rabbit, right? Did the It's a Good Life. And then, um, is it George Miller? It's George does, Miller. Does the tw- Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these huge, huge directors of the time and very different stories, vastly different visual visual sort right. of presentation. As a, as a kid, 
as a, like a, a teenager, I think the latter two stories were my favorites, sort of the, it's a, it's a good life nightmare at 20,000 feet. Those are my favorites. And I mm-hmm. found that as, a, as I've gotten older, that the first two stories actually affect me the most. And I, and I'm, and I'm not, I, I just want to, I'm going to bring it down a little bit and mm-hmm. I'm going to get a little emotional, but I just want to tell you that every time I watch the Spielberg one now, the kick the can, I get a little teary eyed. It actually, it, it, really? it, and I don't know if it's because it's about, you know, being older and, mm. and looking back at youth and thinking, gosh, you know, I wish that I had done this, or I wish that I could relive this, or I wish I could go back. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like I have a lot of regrets in my life, but, mm-hmm. and I don't wish that I were, you know, a teenager again, but I get it. Like I get it now being older. That's really um, interesting because I have to admit, sorry to jump in real quick, but I just, yeah. I have to admit I'm with you. I, the last two stories, you know, Nightmare 20,000 or is it Terror 20,000 feet? Um, mm-hmm. And then it's a good life are by far my two favorites on there. And yeah. I always would skip the Spielberg one. I'm, I'm not sure I ever right. even watched it all the way through. Watch it now, Scotty. I, now that now I now think that, it, now from what you're old. saying, I think it might rather <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it might resonate. I think as a kid, it was, I wanted the monsters. Like yeah. that's, I want, you know, it yeah. doesn't, it's very Spielberg and that it's got that, just the sweetness to it that so much of his stuff has. Yeah, it's the least horror of the mm-hmm. four. I think the horror lies in this, of, of getting to a point in your life where you've lost something and you, right. there is no way of getting it back. And, and okay, whether, yeah, whatever I think that would resonate now. <laughs> yeah, right, so I might right. go watch that this afternoon. I'm, now yeah. I'm really curious. Yeah, I dare you to not not get a little a little clumped there at the, at the at the end. I guess. Well, I mean, it's like metal as I try to like make everyone think I am. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely could be just a big softy when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I definitely I want to talk about the first episode because so there's a a series on Shutter called Cursed films i don't know if you have you seen it yeah so it's fascinating it's fascinating Mm -hmm. i rewatched the twilight zone the movie episode and i I, myself i'm not a fan of trigger warnings like i I, Uh I, if you want them i'm going to give them to you i respect if if you need them and certainly you know that's that's fine myself i don't want them Mm -hmm. um but i'm going to just tell anyone that's listening like you need a trigger warning for that that yeah. series episode because it shows the footage, the lost mm-hmm. footage of the helicopter right. coming down and cutting, you know, Vic Morrow and the two children in half. You don't see them cut in half, but the you see right. the blades come down right, right. at them. Yeah. And then there's and it's 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 yeah, truly it's, horrifying. It's like, it's yeah, to the point where I actually am thinking, oh my God, who got this on? Mm-hmm. Who, who you know how do the censors not like say hey maybe we don't want to show this yeah but, but it's um, showtime and i think i've seen it in other documentaries too and yeah. so for anyone who doesn't know the story i think most people probably do but i mean it, that was the episode directed by john landis Correct. and yeah. there was a horrible accident on set there was a vietnam war sequence and you have the character played by vic moreau carrying two small children across a river as like a battle's going on and mm-hmm. they lost control of the helicopter and it killed, you know, the three actors. And yeah. it was uh, obviously a huge scandal. I believe John Landis was even put on trial for, like, manslaughter. He, he was, and he was found not 
not guilty. Right. Yeah, he was found not guilty. Well, that's such that's such a tricky thing because you know, like here in New Mexico, we're dealing with the whole fallout of the Rust shooting. Um, uh huh. Yeah. And I do yeah. know a lot of people, several people who worked on that set, and I don't want to say too much about it. And you know, obviously, they've just uh, dropped the charges against Alec Baldwin. Right. And I know people here are not happy about that. People who worked on that movie, um, but also he's got his defenders. You know, right. and basically, people saying like it's not the actor's responsibility. And you know, he was you know, told the gun was safe. He was trusting that the gun was safe. And right. you know, I'm not a lawyer. I wasn't on set. I'm not going to talk about culpability. Um, you know, but I will say like, again, like I, I have my cinematographer fall off a cliff if things had gone a different way, <laughs> you know, that could have been a tragedy. I mean, it's just, people don't understand how dangerous filmmaking can be. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know that I think, I mean, I love like John Landis is particularly from that time period. I love his film. Yeah, um, yeah. His son, not so much, but, <laughs> but John, I do. <laughs> Uh, I do love a lot of his work. Yeah, American Werewolf in London. American Werewolf in London. Blues I mean, Brothers. Blues Brothers. Yeah. But like Terry Gilliam, I think there's like a, and you see this when you see John Landis interviewed, there's like a big kid quality to him. Yeah. And I just have to wonder if like, just, you know, obviously what happened wasn't intentional, but you but know, it's played, like, it's like big kids playing with toys and it's like, but that's yeah. not what it is when you're making a movie. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he definitely played fast and loose with a lot, right. a lot of things. I mean, from, from, you know, shooting, they're shooting at like, you know, two in the morning, they have uh, like local children with no permits, you know, you know, for work permits for them. And then at least according to the special effects coordinator that they were interviewing on Cursed Films, he claims he did not know that the number of the, about the number of explosions that were actually set up uh-huh. to go off. And I, I just, it, the whole thing is just, I think that he just did get very excited and yeah. thought, we're going to go big. We're going to go big or we're going to go home. And right. um, good God, it could not have got, gone worse. Well, there's a, you know, a thing that happens in Hollywood, well, I think in a lot of art forms, but particularly it can be particularly dangerous in Hollywood, is like you have some success, you know, you don't have a lot of people telling you no. But, you know, if you're a novelist, okay, you're going to write like a run of bad novels because you're not listening to your editor. If you're a film director or a film producer and you start thinking your shit doesn't stink, I mean, that can be. A really dangerous situation and i have a heart like i don't you know i know that i've seen interviews with john landis where he was heartbroken by what happened you know yeah. he's he's not a bad person because of that but yeah. it does certainly mistakes happened and it's and it's interesting but back to the movie itself i've always felt like that first episode before i really knew the story of like what happened behind it of the four stories that's always been the weakest to me because it kind of feels like it just like it always felt like an incomplete story if yeah. like there's you can tell the chunks of it are like missing from the yeah. story and it's because i mean they they had to cobble together what they had you know sure sure um i mean, I, I, I like them the reason why i think it speaks to me now as an adult is that the classic twilight zone episodes really had this mm. Um, sort of motif of like morality and kind of let's just right. check our own like ethical uh, meters on what's going on here. And I think the other three stories in that movie don't capture that from the original That's a good point. series. Yeah. 
That's but true. this one does. And I feel like it, it's particularly re- resonant for what's going on today and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, kind of this, um, you know, racism and sexism and, and anti-Semitism and all that's right. going amok right now, right. You know, especially in the last decade. And now we're seeing this, even though this is, you know, early 80s. And uh-huh. I think it was, I don't know this. I, I don't know if it was adapted from another story or another Twilight Zone or I... another... I don't know if it was adapted from an earlier. I think it was adapted from something. Whether it was an earlier Twilight Zone, I'm not sure. But yeah, the other three were definite. They were adapted from from the actual you know episodes. This one, I don't. I'm not quite sure what the genesis of this one is. But Mm. it's you know you watch it 20 20 years ago, Uh and you're like, oh yeah, like no, those a little corny 80s, yeah. But now you watch it now, and it's like, yeah, well, this is happening now. Like this guy is is in the bar, you know, dropping the N-bomb, blaming like all these, you know, groups for his own failure Mm -hmm. um, and is just full of hatred. And then to see his punishment, you almost feel like, yeah, like good. Yeah, because it's it's been a while since it's been, but it's basically he like has to go live the lives of like Jews during the Holocaust and and Vietnamese civilians during the Vietnam War and a a black person in the South and you know right exactly and that that's an interesting point that you made about you know that classic Twilight because that's a thing that Rod Serling was known for and even at the time I think got criticized for is being like he was very liberal and he very much approached these stories as allegories and sometimes he could get kind of preachy you know and i think that was like the criticism but when you think about like the time period you know big popular show on a major tv network from like the early uh six late 50s early 60s tackling that kind of subject matter like that was it was daring like people don't realize how daring i think the yeah. Twilight Zone was and how kind of important it was to have that, even if it feels preachy or whatever now, it was important to have that stuff there at the time. And you're right. I think, yeah, whenever I've seen Twilight Zone, the movie, it did feel like, oh, this guy's a relic from the past, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, last few years, it feels less like that. <laughs> yeah. Which is really frightening. It's really yeah. frightening. Yeah. I do want to, um, I'm just going to just name drop someone in here because he's um, so Daniel Brom is Uh a horror writer and a friend of mine. And he collected the original Twilight Zone magazines Mm, from the 80s. He had all of these in his collection. He had, you know, he had preserved them in plastic, everything. And at AuthorCon this year, he was giving them away with a purchase of of a book. And Uh he happened to have, or it's my prop. So he had this one. So this is from 1983 and it goes through each individual story. It interviews each one of the directors. Right. He was so kind that he gave it to me. So thank you for this. I'm curious um, if you look on the, on the masthead, who's the editor? Is it T.E.D. Klein? Um, Ted Klein? No, I want to say it's um, not having glasses with me. Sorry, you're killing (laughs) me. I totally put you on the spot there. I don't I don't think so. I remember looking through this and thinking that it was someone I didn't recognize. Okay. However, what's really interesting is it does it talks about other things that were being released at that time and Evil Dead, the original Evil mm. Dead. <laughs> yeah, that would be the right time period. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They weren't thrilled with it. Um <laughs> they weren't thrilled with it. So 
but John and John Skip is in here. There's actually a picture oh, of John nice. Skip and uh, 40 I years. I met him. I met him yeah. last year at uh, KillerCon. Super yeah. nice dude. But yeah, he yeah. would have been like a baby back then. Like, exactly. Yeah, he, he looks like he's in his <laughs> 20s, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Well, I just, I know that Ted Klein or T.E.D. Klein, I'm never yeah. sure how you're supposed to say it. Yeah. He did edit Twilight Zone magazine for a while. I just didn't, I'm not sure what, because I think the magazine went through the 80s. Like it, it was around through the 80s. I'm not sure when it went under, but yeah. Um, yeah. For the horror fans, he's one of the like great cosmic horror writers who kind of like popped up for like a minute and then kind of just disappeared. <laughs> He put out a couple books and then then he was like he's like our very own JD Salinger kind of. Yeah. But his his legacy is is huge. Like there uh-huh. are a lot of writers I know I've spoken to who have said like that's one of their heaviest influences. But he's I I don't know that he influenced my style cuz he's very much a very like stately kind of, you know, writes in a very almost like high literary style. Like it feels like like if John Updike wrote horror or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um but just his way of like his stories have a way of just warming their way under your skin. So I've always wanted to go find some of those old Twilight Zone magazines because I know he edited those for at least for a while. But that man, yeah. that one may be before his time. I'm not sure. I want to say this is Carol Serling, who who is I don't if I remember correctly, just from reading through it when I had my glasses handy. <laughs> um, I want. I want to say it was her, but I'm not, I'm not certain. Yeah. It's, it's neat. It's really neat to be able to look back and also just see, yeah. you know, their interpretation of, of the, the hot horror movies and, and speculative right. sort of fiction at the time. That's interesting that they didn't like Evil Dead. I know like Evil Dead, um, Stephen King had a big part of popularizing that because he had his quote about it. I don't remember what yeah. the quote was, but then everyone was like, oh, Stephen King liked it. And everyone had to go see it. Yeah. Um, oh, is this that- your segue into your other movie that you- <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be but we could although i do want to like you mentioned because i'm i'm with you i love the particularly the last two episodes of twilight zone movie i want to go back and watch the whole thing again because i feel like i need to give those first two stories a little more of a chance i yeah. i focus so much on it's a good life which is it's based on a short story and i can never remember the writer's name but i've read it and then it was adapted pretty faithfully an an original Twilight Zone episode from the 50s. And then obviously Joe Dante, who's, you know, obviously known for things like Gremlins and whatnot, um, did it for um, the movie. That story, kind of like the nothing in Neverending Story, the concept of this little kid with that kind of just psychotic power to like change reality, but it's like in the hands of a little kid was both like, it terrified me in a very existential way. And as a kid of about that age, <laughs> I was like, man, if I could just like magic my teachers into a big demon rabbit or something, right, like, right. that would be awesome. Well, some of the punishments that he enacts, like when they, when they pan, I think one of the most frightening images in that particular story is the sister that's sitting in fr- in the wheelchair in front of the television uh-huh. and the, the camera kind of pans down because he just says to, you know, Kathleen Quinlan, like, oh, that's my sister, whatever her name is, like uh-huh. Anne or whatever. It's someone, right. you know, throwaway name. She was in an accident. And then uh-huh. the camera pans down and she has no mouth. Like there's literally right. just skin from her yeah. nose to her chin. And you find out later that was his punishment. He didn't, she was yelling at him and it was like, well, guess what? You're never going to speak again. Right. Ever. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's terror. And then he banishes the other sister to Cartoon Land. 
that was i have um i have a weird fear of 80s cartoons like an almost phobia that comes uh-huh. from i realize that this is like a bit of an aside but it it does kind of tie in i used to have this just this recurring nightmare about being chased by zombie smurfs and they were black and they had like dripping red teeth and like red eyes but they would chase me and like make this weird kind of like kind of sound yeah um and i had that nightmare from when i was very young up into college like every so and it was always very specifically the smurfs but they were like my size and chasing me through like the woods or whatever turns out that's an episode of the smurfs like oh my god if anyone remembers the purple fly episode of the smurfs where it's, oh, it's yes. basically it's, night of the living dead but with smurfs yes and making that sound because that yeah, actually gnack, did sound gnack. like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and they don't turn black they turn purple and then they go bite yeah. each other on the tail and then each of them yeah. turn but it's a, and it ends with Papa Smurf and Smurfette, like in a house, being surrounded by the purple Smurfs. I mean, it is literally Night of the Living Dead, but for kids. Yeah, good God, what, what, how are they thinking? Making, that <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Oh, you it, know, you're what? Like it absolutely traumatized me. <laughs> but of yeah. course, I was like, I don't remember seeing that episode at the time, but I must have because I remember being in college and telling a friend of mine who was this also kind of this like dorky, like movie nerd kid. I was like, Yeah, I've had this like recurring nightmare about the Smurfs forever. And I told him the whole thing. And he was like, That's an episode. And then we looked it up. This is like pre YouTube, but we were able to find it somewhere online, like through dial up. Yeah, yeah. And I watched it. It was like, Holy fuck. Like that. Yeah just imprinted itself in my brain so when i think of like the episode of toilet's a movie where he magics his sister into the cartoon and then the cartoon turns psychotic and like for some reason that kind of imagery has always just really disturbed me yeah yeah um understandably yeah understandably i had completely forgotten about yeah okay Uh, yeah I was just going to say, there's a, <laughs> sorry, there's a creepypasta called Candle Cove that they ended up turning into an episode or a season of Channel Zero on Sci Fi Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the creepypasta is, it's super short. I won't say much about it, but you know, you can find it online. Just look for Candle Cove creepypasta. It's like a page long and it is terrifying for the exact same reasons, like the psychotic kid show that you're like trying to remember, be like, is that really what happened on that show? you know like was that a real thing um so yeah that always i mean they do it in um i think they do it in freddy's dead too where he goes into a video game and that always thought was real stupid but somehow the way it works in the twilight zone is really scary yeah 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 Yeah. it's um yeah no it's a disturbing episode in general and Mm. but it ends in in more of like an upbeat kind of note which Uh is um Which is different, I think, from the original. The original "It's a Good Life" I think ends on this kind of like, well, pretty bleak, (laughs) (laughs) very bleak. Um, But at the end of this one, it it, you know, it's a little bit of a yeah, an uplifting ending, and it's very, it's the style of that episode is very Joe Dante. Oh yeah, he is also like a cartoonist. He's also like an illustrator, and so it it comes off as very cartoonish. And understandably, he's struck. You know, the boys structure the house. Mm-hmm. to look like a cartoon right but dante nails it he really nails well, it well and he episode. was like that was his kind of sweet spot because like i mean obviously gremlins that's what he's most known for has yeah. some of the same kind of feel to it 
Yes. You know, when he did a couple like just straight up horror movies early on, like um The Howling. Like I like right. The Howling, but I think he really found his groove when he was doing these like movies for kids that are just way too dark for kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Um like it feels like it's a kids movie, but then you watch it and you're like, how the hell were we allowed to watch this back then? <laughs> yes. Like the Smurfs episode, yeah. which I am going to rewatch. Yeah, tonight, if you actually. if you Google the Purple Smurf or go to YouTube, it's there. I've seen it recently. <laughs> yeah, and then you mentioned the show too. Like I'm a I'm a huge fan of the original Twilight Zone, but I didn't really discover. I mean, I knew it exists, but I didn't really get a chance to watch it until I was a little older. But that '80s TV show was a big deal to me. Yeah, it's um. I actually, I'm, I'll tell you, I have it on. DVD. I ended up buying the. Oh wow! The I'd love to have that because some of them are terrifying, like yeah. terrifying to the point. Of, and and there are a lot of really big actors. You didn't, right? You know, like Bruce Willis. I think was one of his first roles. Is in there. That's right. Um, yeah, I William Peterson's that. in there. Francis McDormand's in there. Huh. Uh, so Morgan Freeman. So some of those episodes are they're terrifying i actually I, I teach high school during the day and every once in a while when i'm teaching irony in particular mm. i will show one of those episodes like um the shadow man I don't know oh right one yeah um or um there's a, a one of the, the richard matheson story button button is done uh there um, on, oh, that's on right. I forgot they yeah. did because I think they did it as one of the '50s ones too. But I forgot they yeah. did it in the '80s. Yeah, yeah, it's well done. It's Mary Winningham plays. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> plays yeah. the the main character. So yeah, it's just it's something that I just. I've always been drawn to their stories. I, I mean, I'm a short story writer at heart. I'm not. Uh -huh. a, I'm not a long fiction writer. And so the Twilight Zone, you know, they're short, but they're really well developed, and they continue to surprise me. And I think looking back on the movie, it's just it's worth rewatching if you yeah. haven't seen it. Wow. Well, and I'm I'm like you, like I I mean I I'm working on some longer stuff that hopefully someday I'll finish. But like I, I think at heart my love is also in writing short fiction. And when I was really focused on being a filmmaker, my favorite thing to do was short films. We would do movies for like the 48 hour film project all the yeah, time. Yeah. And when I go back and look at those movies now, it's very clear to me how much the Twilight Zone influenced me yeah. on those. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't doing it consciously, but like some of my you know, short films like 48 hour film project short films are like that could be a Twilight Zone episode. Like it's yeah. very obvious where I was where my head was at. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I will now move into my next one. <laughs> yeah. And and this goes like I also am the youngest. I have a much older brother. And so and I was the youngest grandkid too. And I think that I think to be like to get into horror, it does seem like that is often a commonality with people is having that older sibling or in your case, this aunt or an older cousin or something who just lets you watch shit that your parents wouldn't, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you're just, they don't care. They're not worried about like, is this going to damage? Cause you're the little brother or yeah. whatever. But like, if they traumatize you, it's fine. You know, yeah. or it's, <laughs> it's funny. funny. It's right. <laughs> So I remember one of the earliest movies I remember seeing, and I don't remember if I saw the whole thing. I would have been pretty young. I think it must have it must have been on video, must have been on VHS, so probably early 80s. But I remember my brother and my now sister-in-law, his then girlfriend. And, you know, my brother's 12 years older than me, so he would have been in high school. I was probably like five or six or 
something. I remember getting up and they were watching the movie The Changeling. Um, yeah, George C. With George Scott. C. Scott. Yeah. And that movie, and again, I don't remember if I sat and watched the whole thing with them, but I know I watched part of it with them. And like that opening scene where uh, his family gets run over by the semi truck. I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, the car accident, yeah, and him being trapped in the phone booth trying to get yeah. out. the phone booth that makes no sense in the middle of the snowy wilderness. <laughs> 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 okay, um, and then. I and I often reference this with my students who take my horror class is to me one of the most terrifying images in all of horror is the rubber ball bouncing down yep. the stairs. Yeah. Um that movie, I think it's probably the first adult horror movie I ever saw. Certainly the first that I remember. And it just I mean, it both traumatized me because I had nightmares about it for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. But also I was just like I wanted to watch it again. Like, I, I wanted to know what that was about. Like, it just, it got its hooks in me. Yeah. And I can watch that movie now. And again, pretty dated, early 80s movie. It's a very almost classic haunted house story. Yes. The kind of yeah. merges weirdly into a political thriller, <laughs> somewhat yeah. awkwardly. But like, but I can watch that movie now and it still gets under my skin. It just, because it just takes me back to being that little kid watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one of the, like, best movies I can think of for like, you know, the unseen terror, you know, just the idea of what you can do without showing, you know, just sound design and suggestion. And so, yeah, that movie, uh, I mean, it's still, I think, I I don't know that I would say it's my favorite haunted house movie of all time, because that's probably The Haunting at this point, the mm-hmm. 1960, I want to say three, Robert Wise version. Yeah. yeah. Um, but The Changeling is the haunted house movie that scared me the most and probably still scares me the most even though i think like if you watch it as an adult i don't want to oversell it because i think if you've never seen it before and you watch it now as an adult i'm sure it's not going to have the effect on you that it would you know me because i think it's still just like embedded something in the little childhood brain you know yeah yeah, yeah. no the car accident when you with the snow with the snow plow um it's funny as you were describing it i can see it i can yeah. see that scene in my head because it is really terrifying really mm-hmm. terrifying yeah. um so yeah i think i i think it, it still resonates today because of that kind of an imagery that, that that's yeah and well, george and- c scott like he's just he's a i like to say like there are some some films where george c scott is at his scottiest right. and, <laughs> and this is one of them um, he's he's real george c scott in that movie <laughs> yeah. Um, like sort of miscast maybe, but it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the thing about that opening s- sequence with the the car accident that got me is it was just so like out of nowhere because you see this yeah. family they're driving through the woods. It's Dorsey Scott and his wife and daughter, and they're having this great time. And uh, for whatever reason, he has to pull. I think maybe he's they've got a, a flat tire or something. He's going into the the phone booth that makes no sense um (laughs) to like call a tow truck or whatever and then the semi-truck or snowplow or whatever it was loses control and just plows into his car and they don't show it graphically but it's clear that it's meant to say it runs over his wife and daughter and it's also like one theme that pops up in my stories a lot and it's interesting because it's actually not something i have a lot of super direct experience with but i tend to write a lot of horror stories about grief and I have to think some of that goes back to watching the changing because it's, it's that's what that movie's about. It's it's directly about 
you know, the, the trauma of grief and the trauma yeah. of loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's just something that I was wondering about this the other day, because as I was talking to you, like I'm planning on maybe hopefully putting out a short story collection soon. So I was going through a lot of my fiction to, you know, decide which stories I want to put in this collection and several of them, a number of them are like the, the, the central thing I'm dealing with is grief. But like I said, I don't have, I mean, it's not that I've never experienced grief, but I don't have that like kind of direct, I've never lost a child or, you know, anything like that. I think it has to go back to the change thing now that I think yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that makes, it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense for sure. Yeah. I don't write a lot of like ghost stories, but, it, but I think part of it is like, I'm afraid I won't be able to capture the feeling that I had watching that because it was so visceral for me as a kid. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually, I think you do. A, I'll just work in what I know of your, I know a lot of your stories. So like the one true. that you do for uh, Dancing yeah. in the Shadows is very much about grief and kind of, and making and, and being haunted. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's probably the closest I've actually written to something yeah. directly. I mean, I wasn't thinking of the changing when I wrote it, but now that you mentioned it, I <laughs> think you can see it's kind of imprint all over that story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, what? So, what? Those are the main ones that we had t- kind of talked about. We wanted to mention, but what other things, like even as you're getting older, were things that just you feel like influenced your work? Is you know, movies, books, whatever. I mean, definitely. Um, I mean, that same aunt and and another one of my aunts introduced me to mythology when I was mm. very, very little. I mean, very little to the you know would just read every type of mythology to me. To the point where I just became, I mean, complete. It was my, yeah. I just became obsessed with, you know, knowing everything, every monster, every god or goddess. Was it specifically um, like Greek mythology? Greek or was mythology, it, yeah. but even just, you know, offshoots like the Norse mythology, and uh-huh. just, and so I, I know that just the those creatures. I don't write a lot of creature uh-huh. horror, but when I do it's almost always pulled from that canon, you know, I'll yeah. pull like a siren in or I'll pull, um, huh, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think I just found, I, I always found them. I still find mythology and some of the, the creepy stories to be really uh-huh. just fascinating and how they're, they're structured. And, and so I think that's part of it. Um, reading i you know i really wasn't a big horror reader growing up i mean my father was was a big stephen king right reader as i think everyone you know in the 1970s and 80s were um but i and so i would read those books and and certainly that had some effect on my writing but for the most part i would just it was really just anything that had a twist to it and it didn't have to necessarily be scary and i I, even today interesting when I read recreationally, it's mostly suspense, crime suspense, you know, that kind of like dark fiction, but not necessarily like horror. horror fiction. Right. 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 Yeah. No, well, that's interesting. And I, I've, I've always felt like some of my sensibilities come from my mom. And she, she's also like you, like what you're saying. She wasn't necessarily a big reader of horror. Um, I think she did read some Stephen King and stuff mm-hmm. um i know she read remember her telling me she read interview with the vampire actually i think when it first came out and it gave her like horrible nightmares mm-hmm. um yeah. but she read and i think still does read a lot of like crime mystery serial killer stuff you know mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. 
and my dad has always been like, where, where'd you guys come? Cause my dad's like, you know, he's like a popular mechanics, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like that's his thing is he doesn't read a lot of fiction, but he watches the news. He, you know, likes, you know, he likes to read engineering magazines. So it's like, yeah, I think yeah. my mom and I are probably both somewhat confusing to him, but he just kind of goes <laughs> with it. <laughs> but th- that, that, crossover between crime stuff and horror is interesting because i as amelia and i have talked about we're both big true crime fans i watch dateline documentaries all the time like yeah Yeah, (laughs) so there's there's it's not the same but they're like there's a venn diagram crossover there Yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely and it's funny because one of one of my friends who reads all i mean she loves she's one of the biggest horror fans that i know she will not read realistic horror. She won't read, you know, serial killers. Yeah. Um, like my like ex-girlfriend that. was like that too. Yeah, because her she rationale didn't like the is, true crime stuff and right. Yeah. I mean, it can really happen. And for her, that's that's a whole other level of being scared. You know, you're watching zombies, you're watching right. vampires, you're reading about, you know, the boogeyman or whatever that you can then you know close the book or shut up the television and be like well th- those are pretend like those don't right. really exist whereas if you're reading or watching something about human monsters yeah it becomes a whole other level of you know feeling unsafe and you know and and so she won't read them like she won't that's, and i get it i get yeah it. that's interesting and amelia's talking you know amelia is a big obviously a big true crime fan but i think she's talked about it we've talked about it on the podcast where to her part of the draw to true crime for her i think as a woman is like it's like preparation it's like you know yeah always like stealing yourself for like the worst possibility and like where's the danger at you know yeah yeah um, and it's and it's it is a gender thing i was just so i just came back from new york city a few days ago and i took the train back and the, i was waiting i was sort of trying to get my uber to come pick me up from the train station and it was late and there were only three other individuals in the train station. Everything else was closed down. I immediately, you know, scan and look at who these other three people are. They're all men. One of them came up to me and started asking me, just making conversation. And the whole time I'm thinking, what do I have for a weapon in my purse? Right. Like where I'm looking at the exits, like how can I outrun this guy? And what was bizarre to me is that there is no way he didn't see on my face you're making me uncomfortable, uh-huh. you know, please, I, I'm a female, please get away from me. But he just continued to talk to me. And, and I think that a lot of like, you would have picked up on it. Like, a, most I would like to think so. <laughs> you would right. hope so. Right. Um, but he, I don't know. I don't know if he picked up on it. And it was like, yeah, I'm still going to make you uncomfortable because this is like well, what I do. <laughs> I, I can be I'm not to be like not all men at you about this, but like yeah. I do think I'm maybe more maybe because I also watch a lot of true crime, read a lot of true crime. Yeah, I'm more attuned to like, and, and I think sometimes being like a big dude like me, I just learned that like oh my size is intimidating, and so like I've learned to kind of try to gauge when people are being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. A lot of dudes for whatever reason really are that clueless and i don't know how they like you said like how could he miss it and i'm not saying he did because i think a lot of dudes also like get a kick out of it or it's like and sometimes in this you know like we're talking about this day and age we're in now where it's just like everyone feels like they have carte blanche to be an asshole yeah and it's like a defiant thing almost 
Um, But like, I am actually fairly stunned sometimes at how dumb men can be about that. Like how, how just utterly, and and again, you know, I used to walk around like the shitty parts of Denver. There was a death metal record store I used to like to go to in the late nineties and like kind of the really not good part of Denver. I lived in the really shitty part of Pueblo, Colorado for a while. And I never was really afraid. I was never really scared. I used to walk around, walk around Boston all the time. And I think a guy even tried to mug me once and I didn't realize that's what he was doing. And I just told him to fuck (laughs) off. (laughs) It occurred to me later. I was like, I think he was maybe trying to mug me. Um, Because he was like, give me your money or whatever. I think he was like, I need money. And he got in my way. And I like kind of just, I was just like, I don't have any money. He's like, I need money. And I basically told him to go fuck himself and kind of push past him. And I realized he was doing the like finger in the jacket thing. to Uh, Yeah. I realized, but it was like a half hour later. I was like, oh, you know so it's like just being a man walking through the world we just don't like we just don't experience that you know and i think that is i i've i used to always wonder why like the true crime things seem to be so gendered and i think that is i think that is a big explanation and i've heard that from you know like i said amelia's talked about it and other friends of mine have kind of talked about the similar thing no i absolutely a particular nerve for women absolutely absolutely it is a kind of cautionary tale or or even just a warning or just a okay this is how this is how it went down if i'm in this situation this is what i'm doing differently kind of right right yeah the closest i have to that experience watching true crime is there's a show on investigation discovery called fear thy neighbor it's about like disputes (laughs) between neighbors that all you know it's like you know you need to cut your lawn two inches shorter and then it ends up with like you know someone massacring like five people (laughs) (laughs) but uh but i do always because like i have a barky dog that likes to go bark at people and like you know i'm always like be nice to your neighbors like that there's a lesson (laughs) to this don't Don't antagonize your neighbors (laughs) you just don't know yeah (laughs) yeah that that is definitely i don't mean to laugh that's no, no, it is. But it, it happens. Like yeah. you just don't know. You don't know. Yeah. yeah, but that's the only that's the only time I watched true or only true crime thing I've ever seen where I felt like, oh, this could directly apply to me. You yeah. know, normally I do have a, like a more of a sense of distance than like what you're talking about or what Amelia talks about. So that is always interesting. It's also interesting when you're saying about the mythology because I think one thing I remember being. A big deal to me when I was a kid were the Time Life Enchanted World books. I don't know if you remember those. No. I'm gonna no. here. I'm gonna grab my prop. Hold on. I need to stand up to get it, but it's on my bookshelf. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. So <laughs> these were the Enchanted World books. I just grabbed one at random off my shelf. I've been trying to collect them. Oh. Those do look familiar. Yeah, it's they kind do. of like a, a canvassy cover. Yeah. This one is so this one's about King Arthur, the fall of Camelot, but they have one that's like night creatures and um but these were uh early mid eighties they were putting these out and they're these kind of illustrated books, yeah. you know, just deal with like different different artwork and you yeah, know yeah. dealing with different anthologies. And we didn't have all of them, but I think we had like four or five of them when I was a kid. And I used to, I don't even know if I read them so much as I would just thumb through and look at the pictures. And that had a big impact. And then the other ones were these, the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown books. 
Oh, yeah. And these all were like about paranormal stuff. So like this one is like mysterious lands and peoples. And so it'd be like about the pyramids and, you know, stuff like that. But this was like my introduction to like UFO lore and like the ancient astronaut stuff. And like most of which I, as we've talked about on the podcast, I debunk most of that for myself now. But like as a kid, I was like totally enraptured by that concept. Did they they have any... um any of the books were they were they on cryptids at all like they have that i think they have one it's like mysterious creatures that i'm looking at my bookshelf alien encounters yeah mysterious creatures uh psychics uh mystic places was i know that like covers the bermuda triangle i actually used it when i did my bermuda triangle episode (laughs) yeah 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 and you can find them now on ebay they're not that expensive i've been sort of slowly collecting these over the last couple of years. Um, yeah. But those oh, no, were I can, kind of Those are definitely, I can see, like, even just when you're holding up, you know, just showing a couple of the pages, I, yeah. I would have been absolutely, you know, enthralled with those for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes I think growing up in Los Alamos, like the weird, you know, it's like my parents both worked for the government. They both kind of did top secret type stuff, (laughs) you know, and like, obviously in New Mexico, we have Roswell and stuff and like, you know, so it's just all of that stuff just kind of percolated in and the weird, like just sense of doom that comes from like knowing that everyone in my town is working on nuclear weapons. Yeah. (laughs) Like yeah. that's their job, you know. I think a lot of that just kind of like just seeped in over time, you know. For sure. Um, a couple of just uh to wrap up here uh pretty soon, a couple other things for me. Like you mentioned Stephen King. Obviously, I've talked about Stephen King on here. The first adult horror novel I read was Pet Cemetery. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I still think that's the scariest book. Um like I didn't realize I was jumping into the like the deep end with that book, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that one really like that was it was after I read Pet Cemetery that I was like, this is what I want to do. Like I wanna yeah. I wanna write scary stories. And then a couple movies, the John Carpenter's The Thing, I saw when I was probably in middle school, but I don't think I really realized how brilliant that movie is until I was a little older. Yeah. Um, the original Night of the Living Dead was a big deal to me. And then uh, Hellraiser and Candyman. You know, the that era where Clive Barker was like the next big thing. You know? Clive Barker. I mean, yeah. The Lord of Illusions, um, right. Nightbreed. I mean, his stuff is... I, Again, the special effects maybe sure. don't, you know, they don't hold up as well. But the storylines, I mean, when you, they're just, I mean, they're gorgeous and, and they're terrifying and. Real weird. Yeah. Much yep. weirder than Stephen King. M- much. And I actually find gorier. Yeah. Um, uh, I find him scarier. I find Clive Barker scarier than, than Stephen King. And I'm yeah, Stephen, sure I love Stephen King, but I don't tend to get i mean pet cemetery scared me like there'll be the occasional thing that will scare me but some of the short fiction um gwendolyn keiston i talked about like his night shift collection is genuinely pretty scary yeah, yeah. but like barker his stuff gets under your skin particularly that time period would really it was much more transgressive and i'm you know 13 years old reading about basically like bdsm stuff you know yeah yeah that was just it was just all like completely new to me <laughs> yeah i think the special effects in the hellraiser hold up pretty good they're not in fact i, I re-watched mean, it recently and uh-huh. it's i wasn't i mean this is really not popular opinion but i'm not not a huge fan of the re the remake or the new hellraiser interesting I'm not, 
Yeah. Not a huge fan. The the original one, I I really enjoy. I I mm-hmm. there's just something about I don't know, like just the characters. There's right. really not a likable. I don't even like the daughter, like the main Christy, character. Christy, no, yeah. I don't like any. Like, there's not a likable character in that movie for me. But I find it just so. It's just so insidiously creepy, uh-huh. creepy on so many different levels. Yeah, I think everything. Well. There was one scene I remember looking at and thinking, oh, I just wish, I wish he could go back and kind of clean this up a little bit. Because otherwise, the, the costume design, the makeup design uh-huh. definitely holds up. Definitely yeah. holds up. Well, some I think the the stuff where Frank is like coming out of the floor, which is clearly it was stuff you know shot in reverse. It was like a melted yeah. skeleton that they shot in reverse. Yeah. But it's weird how well that works still. <laughs> yeah. Simplest yeah. effect in the world, but it still kind of works. Yeah, um, even when he's kind of like in the in-between stage where he has skin, but it's not it's not right. quite all the way formed, and he's sort of like smoking a cigarette, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, talking. And um it's it's unsettling. It's yeah. it's believable and, and unsettling. And um yeah. Yeah. No, that I think Hellraiser was a big i think hellraiser and clive barker were important because like i i do love stephen king but stephen king is a pretty like you know he writes small town horror you know generally has pretty likable like regular joe type characters and usually by the end like order is restored in some way it's a very like traditionalist thing i like that i discovered clive barker very shortly after discovering stephen king because it very quickly was like oh you can like like horror can encompass a lot of things and you can really go for it like his stuff goes so far out there and some of the early stuff like you said the characters aren't particularly likable like i think when you talk about the influence he had on the splatterpunks which i kind of mentioned on my clive barker episode i don't think it's even like the Gorns, I think it's just that kind of punk rock. Like everyone's terrible. Everything's grungy and grimy. Yeah. And like, and we're going to like take you to a place that like is going to be really super unpleasant. You yeah. know? Yeah. Like yeah, we're there not going to no, hold back. Yeah. There's no character to kind of cling to and be like, right. okay, well, this is my safe place. Like this is the hero. There is no real, yeah. real hero. Right. Um, it's just, it's just, yeah. And, and those, like you mentioned Lord of Illusions, and I always feel like I have to defend that movie because that one gets a lot of people shit on that. That was his last movie he did as a director. And you can tell, like, there was some studio interference and stuff. Same with Nightbreed. But, like, I think Lord of Illusions is kind of underrated. I think there's a lot of really good, scary stuff in that movie. I, I like, and I just like the story. I like the mm-hmm. storyline. Um, yeah. The special effects are by far the worst i think of all of the (laughs) of all of his right but um i just i found the whole it has like cult horror in it it has Mm -hmm. it's just i find it i think the acting is actually pretty good some of it's a little hammy but um i mean i will always like probably because i was just a quantum leap fan as a kid but i'm always happy to see scott bacula and something yeah. and to yeah. see him in a, like a weird fucked up clive barker movie <laughs> was yeah. definitely was not his like persona of the time so that was really interesting yeah, yeah. well yeah famke johnson's in it um i can't remember the name of the guy who plays the cult leader but he's terrifying he's t- absolutely terrifying and, and everything that i i saw him in after that even in comedies he will always be right. Nick's. He'll always Nicks, be Nick's. Right. Right. Yeah, for me, for sure. And then, for and sure. like 
and Nightbreed, I think again, it's one where like you can kind of see where the studio came in and sort of fucked it up. But there's so much in that movie that's just to me is iconic, and just oh, some yeah. of the imagery and Cronenberg as Decker. Like, I mean, you can't get better. <laughs> I mean, and he and he is so he gets so under your skin. Yeah. You know, where he's just, he's, you know, torturing the, the, the man with the, and he has him tied up with Christmas lights, <laughs> like, say it, say and then, it, and just sort of kills him. The guy's dead. And he's like, or oh, don't say don't it. Say it. You know? Right. <laughs> you know? Well, it's because, I mean, and people obviously nowadays, if you don't know Clyde Barker's, or not Clyde Barker, Cronenberg uh, is an actor. He, I think he's been on Star Trek Discovery, and that's where people would like know him now. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, you know, he's mostly known as a director, but he just has, I mean, it's just that Cronenberg, like kind of very soft spoken, icy, but he's got that like dead Cronenberg stare. <laughs> and yes. like, so he's just like, when he does act, which is very rare, like I think he pops up in that um, To Die For movie at the very end, the Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Yeah. At the very, very end, I think. I wish he acted more, I think. But I do love that we get him as Decker because um, he's one of my favorite movie villains of all time. And oh, you can yeah. tell Cronenberg's just, it's like when, whenever Werner Herzog acts, it's like you can tell this guy, he's just, he's like, oh, whatever, I'm just here to have fun and be weird and creepy, you know? Yeah. 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 And then, of course, like I've talked about it, so I don't need to talk a whole lot about it, but Candyman was big to me yeah what is so what did you think of the remake like how wh- what are your thoughts on that i liked it i understand some of the criticisms of it it's kind of how i feel about the new um hellraiser too actually yeah. I, I liked the new hellraiser but i understand i mean the the criticism of the new hellraiser that is not legitimate to me is the people who don't like the the you know that it's a trans woman playing pinhead oh, yeah that, like, get over I mean, yourself that, yeah, right, right. Right. But I understand like structurally in terms of the story structure and stuff. And and with the new Candyman, they do change the mythology quite a bit. Um, and it becomes something very different than the original. But I think it it I think you can take the original kind of at face value as what it is, which I did for 30 some years as a fan. Mm-hmm. But for me, the new one, like, added this just, it's just a new way of looking at the original that you can take it if you want or you don't have to. Yeah. That I found really interesting. And, like, and I thought it actually did, it took the idea of like what an urban legend is and put it in this kind of racial violence context yeah. in a way that actually I felt that felt a little more developed to me than yeah. the original. So, those are the things I liked about it. I I do understand like people have issues with the pace of the movie and I can kind of understand that. So like I I I sort of hear all the criticisms of it, but I do like I I like it. Um I feel I loved it when I first saw it and then as I've gotten some distance on it, I feel like I need to go back and watch it again the and new see one? how it kind of yeah. yeah, the new one, see how it kind of really feels on like a rewatch. Yeah. Because I'm no, not I, sure. I, I, it hasn't stuck in my mind the way the original has. But that may be because I was 13 or something. Or 15, maybe, when I saw the original. So Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think the allegory is much more flushed out in the new one. Um, but, I, I, mean, and I, th- I mean, I like the original one better. And I think it's okay. because I... I I'm a big fan of psychological horror. And uh-huh. this whole idea of, you know, this person knows something to be true... And everyone else is like, no, you're crazy, right. you know. And so and, for me, that that's a real trope that that 
you know, bothers me. Uh-huh. And really gets under my skin. And so the Helen character and her, you know, understanding and, and collecting all this evidence and understanding what's going on and everyone sort of, and then her, her husband essentially gaslighting her and right. getting her locked up. Um, the great creepy Xander Berkeley is always just a sleazebag. He's like yes. the best Hollywood sleazebag. <laughs> yeah. Everything I've heard is he's supposed to actually be a genuinely like super nice guy, but he plays sleazy so yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, it's, I mean, that for me is what made that right. movie for me. I liked what I did like about the the new one, um, in addition to sort of the, the, meta, the metaphor that goes on, is the callbacks to uh-huh. the original one, which yeah. I thought were just well done. Like, well, I really like when there is a tie, but they're not completely forgetting the original mythology. Yeah. And they're, they're just, they're reminding us like, no, we're still in that, this same universe. And I'm going to show you, like, wink, wink. Do you remember this kind of? Right, and it's just yeah. like, but it's like, like I said, it's a different take on the mythology. It's, it's a yeah. little less literal. I think I agree with you because um, I've always loved the original, and I like the new one, but I, I don't think it's had quite the resonance for me. And I think the original gets so deeply into Helen's perspective. Yeah. And there's something in the new one that you always feel like you're a little bit outside of it, like you're a little more a third person watching everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it does lose something there. It also the new one really doesn't work as a standalone film. I think like it's, yeah. If you haven't seen the original, I can't imagine the new one would have the uh, the impact yeah. that it does. I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, I should go ahead and let you go, but before I do that, I do want to give you a chance to just talk a little bit about American Cannibal. You mentioned. Oh it. yeah, and I want to talk about something that's coming out in about a month too. Okay. But American cool. Cannibal. So American Cannibal dropped the beginning of March, and it is 20 authors. Each one of them tackled a period in American history Uh and reinterpreted it with cannibalism. And it's done either like literal cannibalism, uh, metaphorical. And I know that, uh, you know, sort of it may seem like it's going to be repetitive and it's not. So each one of these writers took a completely different approach to, to the trope. And, you know, we have a little bit of comedy here. We have a little bit of splatter here. You know, it's just, I, I had a so much fun putting this together and I really cannot be prouder of it. Well, who are some of, I mean, you've got some really great authors in there. Like I believe Gwendolyn Keist is in it, right? Gwendolyn Kais, her story, oh my gosh, it is it is a juggernaut. It is a second nice. person point of view, 1950s housewife, you know, almost like allegorical, you know, sort of take on on what, you know, the situation with women in, in the 1950s America. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, every one of those authors, they just brought it. They brought nice. it. Like they brought their A++ game. And so... No, I was really fortunate. Um, you know, a good half of these, more than half of the authors I'd never worked with before, didn't know me very well, and and took a chance on someone that it's I'm not a well-known editor and and this was a brand new press and and they took a chance on me. And so I'm 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 extremely grateful. I'm very grateful. Well, and I'm, I'm proud. I'm, I'm very excited to read it. I didn't. Re- I knew it was obviously about cannibalism. <laughs> it's right yeah. there in the title. I didn't realize the thematic link. I mean, it almost sounds like, in a way, like uh, pieces, and that it, you could almost read it as a novel, but it's like short stories connected. Yeah, well, I mean, it goes it goes chronologically. So yeah. 
Yeah. I'm I'm really excited about that one. Also, and you said you were going to mention something else you have coming up, but I yes. do want to just real quick throw in a plug for Shagging the Boss too, which I just <laughs> recently read. <laughs> Finally. And it's and, not erotica. Can you just, can you actually? <laughs> yeah, we, we should, we should uh, make clear that the title is, uh, yeah, it's not what you expect yeah, <laughs> that it's going to yeah. mean. I mean, it's like boogeyman horror, like yeah. yuppie horror. It's got some cannibalism. It's yeah. super weird, which I always love. Oh, and it's got you. one of those um, just great, like left turn endings that I didn't see coming. So, yeah. Oh. Oh, um, thank you so much for so that's from that. that's from Filthy Loot Press. Is that correct? It's from Filthy Loot. Yeah. Who I'm also I'm very grateful to them because this is like yeah. it's such a like you're saying it's weird. It's like a, like a misfit kind of horror. Yeah. Piece and and they took it and they just I I I can't be I, I I'm really proud of that book. I am. Yeah. Um, and that one is only available in paperback, right? Like you can't only get in it paperback. Yeah. So, but I, it's definitely worth it. Go, go to Amazon. It's another short. It was a quick read. I was engrossed in it from the start. So oh, um, thank you so much. Scott. It's, it's another one that's like weirdly funny. Um, <laughs> and I was laughing at things that I was like, am I supposed to be laughing at that? <laughs> So yeah, definitely check that. And, and so yeah, what, what is it you have coming out soon? Oh, so I have a new novella coming out in a three novella collection. Right. The collection is titled Table for Three. Uh-huh. 100%, absolutely every single penny goes to Texas food banks. And um, oh, nice. the, other, the other two authors that are in the collection are Douglas Ford and Holly Ray Garcia, who is the brainchild behind this collection. Um, she's from Texas and okay. um, she knows it's a, it's a, it's a real issue. I mean, uh, food scarcity is a, is a real issue, obviously right. nationwide, but she sees it, you know, right there. She's in the Houston area. And oh, so, yeah. So she's just right close to it. And so this was something she's like, I want to do something. I want to give back. And, yeah. um, and so each one of our stories does have to do with, it's a food horror story. Mine is very Gen X-y. Um, nice. It takes place in the <laughs> mid nineties five college students living in an apartment and um, it's got a little bit of pica in it, which is the disorder where you eat uh, things that are not food. Right. And, right. Um, but the, the background of the story is that there is a fungus that starts growing on the grain of America's wheat crop mm. and it wipes out uh, such a huge amount of the food supply that um, it just, it's, it's sort of this domino effect of the madness okay. that starts to go on. So uh, I'm I'm excited. Well, I've been excited. I thought that was what I was hoping that was what you were going to mention because yeah. I've been, uh, I got my pre-order in already. I mean, oh, I love your work, but also Holly and, and Doug are both really great writers too. Oh, so. they're fantastic. They're fantastic. The and they're the just good together people. Is. Yeah, just, yeah. 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 I'm not sure I've met um, Holly. I met Douglas at KillerCon last year. KillerCon. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, Super, super nice guy. And yeah, I love, I love his work. I love her work. I love your work. So (laughs) I'm excited about that one. Yeah. 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 So it's June, June 2nd, June 2nd. 2nd. Okay. (laughs) So coming up, coming up soon. Well, thank you so much again for this last minute (laughs) jumping on uh, a weirdest thing podcasts. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hopefully, at some point, I can be on, and Amelia will actually be here too. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that would be—I think it would be fun to have some like episodes where it's like you know we have a third person, so we yeah. we ought to try and like get that going. And actually, I'm going to take this opportunity to announce I 
I'm still in the planning stages of this. I don't even have a name for it yet, although there's a couple that I'm playing with. But I am going to be starting a solo podcast soon. Um, the weirdest yeah. thing is not going anywhere. We're still, we're going to be doing our thing. But I really want to do like a horror I've had such a great time talking to you, talking to Gwendolyn and Sarah. I would love the opportunity to talk to more horror people and just just really like dig into the genre and, you know, talk to the people who are responsible for it. So hopefully it's coming in the next month or so. It'll probably be like a once a month thing. Um, I'm going to have my friend Mandy, who did uh, a guest spot uh, last year. She's going to be on with me. I'm obviously hoping to have you on. I'm going to be reaching out to some other people. So that hopefully will be coming soon. So I will definitely announce it again as i get closer so that's gonna be super fun that's gonna yeah. be super fun yeah, yeah. i'm really I'm, I'm excited about it so but until next time uh amelia should be back next time but she is also opening a, a show <laughs> right when she gets back into town so we'll we'll kind of play it by ear but um she should be back we are going to do our uh ask me anything episode so if you have questions please uh, contact us on instagram or on facebook let us know uh, and literally anything i mean if it's inappropriate we may not answer it but you know give it a shot <laughs> you never know unless you ask you never know you never know unless you try so um but until then uh stay weird stay curious and I'll be back with Amelia next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.